0: Take your Bibles, if you would, this morning and turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. I have verses 1 through 7 there as a part 1. We're actually going to be looking at verses 1 through 4, and then um, we'll do 5 through 7. Uh, next time we're together, if all goes as planned. We are now completely past, in Genesis, uh, the judgment of humanity through the flood. The last couple of weeks we, we were talking Thanksgiving, now we're back in Genesis, and we are past the flood entirely. Uh, Noah and his sons have come out of the ark, And uh, there is a new society that will now be built upon the family of Noah and specifically upon the family of his sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In Genesis chapter 8, a couple of weeks ago now, we began to think through the immense um, uh, changes that were taking place in the immediate aftermath of the flood. Noah is worshiping God. God declares at that time that as long as, as the earth remains, there would be seasons, there would be hot, and there would be cold, there would be springtime, and there would be harvest. And we spoke of the fact that this inferred a new thing, a new paradigm for humanity, something very different than what the world had looked like prior to that time. And we think through that idea of what the world may have looked like if God is now instituting seasons and, and, and this cataclysmic event has brought into uh, the, the existence of... The ecosystem now springtime and harvest and summer and winter and heat and cold, what things were like prior. And we talked about the possibilities there. Of course, none of us knows. None of us was there. And God did not see fit to tell us. And uh, nobody else was there, right? Uh, so we have evidence. But we, all of that evidence is, is open to interpretation, which is what we do. We interpret the evidence. But what we would infer is that prior to the flood, it was likely that there were not seasons, that there was a temperate climate. Uh, this might have been a part of why people lived so long prior to the flood. That prior to the flood, as we think through that time, uh, since there was this temperate climate, it appears that there was not rain. We know that in the flood, the fountains of the deep were broken up. And so much of the water of the flood did not come from rain, though it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But much of the waters of the the flood came from under the earth. We know that prior to that, in the Garden of Eden, there was a mist that had covered the earth, right? So there was a a general mist. If you go to like a greenhouse or whatnot, you might find that there's there's, uh, um, uh, sprinklers that will mist on those plants something akin to that where there was a constant humidity there was a constant mist if that is the case um, then things would have grown uh, all year round and when when God instituted these seasons after the flood he said that I am doing this as as a part of, of the process of Noah, all right, and the blessing upon Noah. And we recall when Noah was born that God said that Noah, uh, his father called him Noah because he would comfort the world concerning the curse that God had levied on man. Well, the curse that God had levied on man was that thorns and thistles would grow and would resist man. So imagine a situation where things grow 365 days out of the year, where it's a temperate climate, 365 days out of the year, but there are thorns and the thistles. Imagine how much work it would have been for man to keep those weeds at bay. It would have been a constant process, but now we have seasons. And in the seasons that God instituted following the flood, now there's a there's a growing season, and then there's a season where things do not grow. There's a, a dead season, right? There's winter. And in winter, man can get ahead of things. He can He can get ahead of the weeds. We can start afresh and anew the next year. We can plow up those fields again, and we can get going again. So God actually comforted humanity concerning the curse that he laid on Adam through this other great curse or this other great judgment that is the flood. So that was a, a an entire paradigm shift as it related to the world. This world-shaking cataclysm took place and now we have this new paradigm of summer and winter and springtime and harvest and hot and cold. Well, over the next two weeks, we're going to look at two other paradigms, one of which, uh, both of which are God-instituted paradigms for man himself. So these are not going to be climate paradigms. These are not going to be paradigms um, that are directly related to the functioning of the earth. These are going to be paradigms directly related to how God is now dealing with man and how God is allowing man to function. And um, the first of these is found in Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 4, where we read this. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air and upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you even as the green herb have I given you all things. But flesh without the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye, excuse me, flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Now the Bible says here, God blessed Noah and his sons. And the essence of this blessing was not just general happiness, not just go and be warmed and filled or anything of the sort. This was a blessing of fruitfulness, and it directly pertains to the idea of procreation. He blesses them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. And he tells them to be fruitful, to multiply, and to replenish the earth. Now take note again, this is the second time in Genesis that we've seen this word replenish. And I want to be very clear about what this word means. It's not as important here, but I'll remind you about why it's important in a moment. When the King James Bible was written, the word replenish in English did not mean to fill again. It simply meant to fill or to complete. It didn't talk about it being for the first time or the second time or the third time. It didn't matter. The word simply meant to fill. Now, if you were to look it up in a dictionary today, the word replenish would most regularly be understood to mean to fill again. But that is not what the word meant in, in, 1611 or 1769 when the, when, when the King James was first written and then revised, nor is that what the Hebrew word underneath the word replenish means. The word here simply means to fill or to, um, to, to complete. Now you say, Pastor, why? why? Why does it matter? I mean, in this case... They are filling the earth again, right? The earth has been uh, judged. Mankind has been destroyed. All the animals have been destroyed, save that which is on the ark of salvation. And now we have this... Replenishing this refilling of the earth. Why does it matter that, that word repl- that that we understand that word replenish to simply mean fill? And that's because of if you recall Genesis chapter one. I'm not going to turn back there with you, but remember in Genesis chapter one, right at the very beginning, after God made man, he did the he he gave the exact same command to Adam and Eve that they would replenish the earth. And many people will use the idea that the word there is replenish to say, oh. There was a humanity prior to Adam and Eve. And then that gets into the various theories. I talked about that when we we're there. If you weren't here for that or if you don't remember that, you can go back and listen to those sermons uh, on YouTube or on podcast, Sermon Audio, and you can, you can hear what I had to say about that. But that is not what that word means. The text is not saying in Genesis chapter 1 that God was refilling the earth after some sort of cataclysm. The te- and and I, I defended that there. The text is saying that God is commending them to fill the earth. And so that, that point I made there, and this word replenish is that same word that we find there. It does not mean in our Bibles to refill. It simply means to fill. And it is worth reminding ourselves of that verbal distinction so that we work a proper understanding of that word into our minds in order that we can accurately understand as well as teach this concept to others as we read our Bibles. So God calls upon them to fill the earth. And then God announces another post-flood change here. He tells Noah that the fear of man would rest upon every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air and every fish of the sea. Now, once again, we are forced to consider what this pronouncement means. We all take for granted that... Undomesticated animals are generally By their nature skittish Animals have a natural fear of man This is something that in most animals Could be trained out of them or bred out of them To some degree, but by nature Animals have a natural fear of man And the first note to make here Is that we might presume this was not Always so, in that God is Pronouncing that there is a fear of man That would be placed into these animals We would believe that prior to the Flood, within whatever that economy Looked like, and again we can't not even imagine what that, what that world looked like in that world, animals did not have a fear of man and they did not need a fear of man because God had not given man the right to eat flesh. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 that, that God had given them the herbs and every herb that was good for them, so they did not eat flesh, so there was no reason for the animals to be skittish, and they lived, as we would understand, in general harmony, at least with man, reminding us that things were very, very different. Now, we don't know what the relationship was between animals and one another. When, recall when I was telling you that um, when, after the flood, when, Noah, then, when the ark had landed on Ararat, he first sent... A raven out and then he sent out a dove and remember as I was telling you what some people think of as it relates to the raven and the dove and some of the metaphorical spiritual ways that people will read into that I had mentioned the fact that ravens are carnivorous and the reason why the raven didn't have to come back to the ark is the dove had to come back to the ark was because the raven could for lack of a better way to put it land on all of the floating bodies and 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 meet his his uh, dietary needs However, and, and, and that, if that's true, of course, that's an inference in and of itself. And if that inference is true, well, then the raven was certainly eating meat prior to this pronouncement. So we might assume that either the animals were already eating meat or maybe they weren't and, I'm, and, and, and all of our assumptions about the raven at that time are wrong. All of those are assumptions. That's me. That's not the Bible, right? We always want to separate between what's Pastor Wickler or what's theology or what's speculation and what is the Bible teaching us. All of that is speculation. We're inferring some things here, but what we do know is that to this point, seems very Likely that God was not allowing man to eat meat, and now God is allowing man to eat meat. Prior to the flood, man did not eat animals, and we might presume we might presume that animals did not eat each other. We just don't really know. But from this point onward, God is changing that. He's allowing man to eat the meat of animals. And this naturally explains why God would need to put the fear of man into animals, lest they all just stand there and die. This new liberty, however, came with a caveat, and that caveat is here in verse 4. He says that the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. Uh, They were to first bleed the animal, drain the animal of his blood, and then they were Allowed to eat it. Now, we're actually not going to talk about that very much this week. You will consider it a little bit as we talk through the various aspects of eating meat and we trace it through the various time periods of the Bible. But we'll consider it more next week because it seems as though this prohibition here is not so much functional in and of itself, as much as it is about the next thing that God will institute, what we consider to be the institution of human government in verses 5 through 7. And God is is using the eating of meat as a picture that he will then solidify in verses 5 through 7. We'll talk about that next time we're together. But for today... I want to think about this new paradigm, this new liberty which God had given to man on that day in Genesis chapter 9 of eating of meat. And I want to think about not just what it meant to Noah in that day, but we're going to talk a little bit about what it means today. And the reason why it's worth considering is because the eating of meat has been and is still at times both in the church and now in society it's becoming controversial. Within the church, there has always been wings and sectors of the church uh, who have fallen into Judaic practices, have fallen back upon Old Testament principles, and so they have limited themselves with it, with relation to eating of meat, either not eating meat at all, depending on how far back in the Bible they go, or eating only meats that we would call kosher in, in agreement with the, the Jewish laws. And so I want to address those ideas, and we're going to think through that. But then we also find in society. Today, that it's becoming more controversial in broader society because of the cultural sensibilities, the shift in sensibilities in our culture around the ideas of lowering carbon emissions and emphasizing sustainability. And so we need to think through that as well as we think through what God has done on this day in Genesis chapter 9 with the eating of meat. Now, within the realm of biblical Christianity, then there have always been wings of the church which have taught restrictions. Concerning the eating of meat. Uh, This is generally derived from a couple of different perspectives on the Holy Scriptures. The first of these is a perspective that rejects meat altogether, and this is rooted in reasoning, first connected in Genesis chapter 1 through 8. And then it would be continued into the book of Daniel. Now, the reasoning among these proponents is that while humans certainly can eat meat, our bodies obviously have been made to, to consume and digest meat. It is not what God, what, the, what, what they'll pr- propose is that this is not what God originally intended. And so they, by faith, believe that they ought to reject the eating of meat as a course of regular sustenance. What they will say is, well, obviously when God created Adam and Eve and he made this Edenic state, that Edenic state, in that Edenic state, they were not to eat meat. Then for the next, whatever we would say, something like 2,000 years until the time of the flood, they did not eat meat. So obviously God intended man in his natural condition not to eat meat. Therefore, we want to get back to that most pure state of man so we are not going to eat meat either. And um, the, uh, the first idea here that it, it was not until after the flood that God allowed the eating of meat. It was obviously not within God's original plan. And they want to fall back upon that purity. Well, that, that, that's there. And then what they take next is they take that idea uh, from Genesis chapters 1 through 8 and then they continue that thinking along into the book of Daniel. And for those of you that are familiar with the book of Daniel... Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and Daniel. These four young men, if you recall, they were taken into captivity, in the second captivity, in fact, out of the three, into Babylon, and they were among the princes of Judah. And as they were strong and robust men, they were chosen to be men who would stand before the king of Babylon as princes of Judah. They were going to become wise men, Chaldeans, uh, uh, the Chaldean wise men and stand in the court of the king. Now, as a part of their preparation in order to stand in the court of the king, the Bible says that they were fed with the king's meat for a span of three full years. So they came into captivity, and for three years they did nothing but get healthy and strong. And the king... Had them eating his meat from his table, the best meat in the entire empire, in order that they could then become strong. However, this was the king's meat. It was not kosher meat. It was meat that was not prepared according to the law of Moses. And these were Jewish young men. And so they were very, very troubled by this. To this end, Daniel requested of the prince of the eunuchs, he was a man named Melzar, that he and his companions might not eat of the king's meat. Now, there is nothing in the text that implies that they were were inherently vegetarian before this point, only that they ate kosher, right? Only that they would not eat unclean meats. However, obviously, something about the king's meat, whether it was in preparation or whether it was the actual meat itself, was unclean. We'll talk more about unclean in just a moment. So they present to Melzar and they say, we would like to not eat of the king's meat because it is unclean and we are Jews. Melzar was not persuaded to do so because it was his job to get these men strong. And if at the end of those three years, those men stood before the king and they were gaunt and they were lean and they were, and they were, they were skinny and they were weak because they were not if they were malnourished, the king would have Melzar killed. It was his job to nourish them. If they were malnourished, Melzar did not do his job, and he's in trouble. So he said, no, I'm not going to do that. Of course I'm not going to do that. You need to eat this meat so that you can be strong, so that my job is accomplished, so that, so that the king is happy with me. But Daniel, in faith, requested that they be allowed to eat nothing but pulse and water for 10 days. He said, test us. We will eat nothing but pulse and water for 10 days. And then you compare us to the other men that you have with you and see how we look. And if everything, if we're looking just as strong and as healthy, then you let us keep on the diet. If you start to see us wither away or get weak, then... then do what you will with us. Melzar agreed to this arrangement. So these four men, by faith and in determination that they might keep their bodies undefiled, ate nothing but pulse and water for 10 days. And the Bible tells us that at the end of that 10 days, their countenance appeared fairer and fatter than those that ate the meat. So naturally, Melzar took away their meat and he gave them pulse instead. Now proponents, the Christian proponents, as they look at what God instituted in Genesis chapters 1 through 8 and then they look at what happened with Hananiah, Azariah, uh, uh, Mishael and and Daniel in Daniel, uh, in the early chapters of Daniel will say, see this this is God's blessing upon a no meat diet they will say that it was the pulse and the water that made their countenance fairer now I don't agree and I'm not saying this because I necessarily disagree with a vegetarian lifestyle, although I certainly don't follow one, but that's not what the text is saying. These men did not become fairer and fatter because they ate the pulse and drank the water. They became fairer and fatter because God was blessing their faith in not defiling themselves with the king's meat. So God was doing something unique. He was giving them a unique dispensation and blessing their faith and sustaining their bodies through this. He was not necessarily laying down a principle for all of us to follow. So to that end, I I find that argument as it relates to the the Christian wing here lacking. Daniel 1 is not a lesson of whether or not to eat meat per se. And again, there's nothing even that necessarily says that Daniel and, and these other men did not eat meat ever. They simply could not eat the king's meat because it was not clean. There was a reason why the most civilized and advanced nation in the world at the time, that would be Babylon, fed men meat for three years before seeing the king. There's little doubt that they had cultivated a diet plan that was naturally inclined unto men's strength and health. So a meat, was, meat was a part of that. We recognize that if you don't eat meat, that there are nutrients that you have to supplement in some other ways because there's some pretty essential nutrients in meat that are hard to get in other ways. So what we actually find there is a lesson of faith and separation. That Daniel and his companions were determined to obey the law of Moses, to remain undefiled, not eating defiled meat, and though it ran contrary even to biology and nature, God supernaturally blessed these men's bodies as they dedicated themselves to remaining undefiled. Now as it relates to the other reason that prior to the flood, men did not eat meat, and in that this was not God's original intent, we ought to strive to find our way back to that intent. That's the argument, right? God's original intent, finding our way back. I would simply propose to you that once again, as it relates to these things, should we go back to eating just herbs and, 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 and vegetables and such because that is what they did pre adamic state. That is what they did, uh, not pre adamic pre-flood state. That was the pre-flood state. And I remind you, they also lived to be 900 years old. They also, the animals did not fear them. There were also no seasons. Things were very different before the flood. And the idea that perhaps one of the reasons why God gave man to eat meat was not simply to loosen up a little bit, but maybe it was because when everything changed in ecology, in, in, in the atmosphere, now man needed the nutrients that the meat would supply that he did not need before. Maybe, the, maybe the, the, the plants before the flood would had more nutrients in them. We don't know. We don't know. But what we know is this. God said, I have given you every living thing now to be meat for you. And so, and we'll talk about this more. If a man chooses not to eat meat, that's perfectly fine. But what we find in the scriptures is that the arguments that say we should not eat meat don't necessarily hold up to scrutiny as it relates to the Christian life. Now, the second general camp related to not eating of meat in the the church is those Christians who follow the prescriptions of the Old Testament as it relates to clean and unclean meat. So they're not completely no-eat meat. They would simply be eating only clean meats or eating kosher as we call it today. And this is perhaps a little bit more clear and straightforward of a perspective These believe, for one reason or another, that the law of Moses is worthy of the Christian's obedience and priority. Some of them believe that we must keep the law of Moses. Others believe that it's simply a very, very good template that God gave, and so why not follow the template that God gave? But for one reason or another, they feel that this is very, very important, and they submit themselves to it, some believing it's a sin not to follow the law of Moses, others simply doing it by best practice, if you will. And what I'd like to do for the remainder of our time today is lay out the general scope of biblical revelation on this topic of eating of meat. So that we at Legacy Baptist Church, as individual Christians, as families, and as a church, can rightly relate ourselves to all of these thoughts and to gain some perspective on them. And perhaps then we can also help some others to do the same. So we find... Five general divisions of history. I hope that's somewhat readable there. It gets a little small with five divisions. But five general divisions of history as it relates to God's blessing and provision of mankind relating to food. From Adam to Noah, we find that God gave to mankind every herb bearing seed and the fruit of every tree yielding seed. That's in Genesis chapter 1 verse 29. Man was sustained through those things alone. And again, we can go through the exercise of imagining how and why that was, what nutrients may have been in the grains before the flood that are not present now, uh, what the atmosphere may have been like before the flood that is not the way it is now, what man's body composition was before the flood that isn't as it is now. But of course, it would all be speculative because the Bible has not seen fit to tell us. And as I've said before, and I'll continue to say, there's an awful lot that we have on the lines of the Bible to spend inordinate amounts amounts of time reading between those lines, right? So we we can focus on what is on the lines, and we can find in that the things that God has called us unto for life and godliness. We can speculate about the things between the lines, but we need to admit that we're only speculating. So that was the Adam to Noah um, division there. Then we have the beginning in Genesis chapter 9, which is our, our formal text for today. We have God giving man everything that is living for meat from Noah, the time of Noah, that would be Genesis 9 to the time of Moses. If it is alive, God says, you can eat it. In the same way that God had given man every green herb, now he has given man the flesh of living things. As long as they first drain the blood, they do not eat the, the, the blood with the meat. That's that notable requirement, a requirement which, as I said, we'll talk about more next week. Is probably not so much about the meat itself, although there might be some health uh, uh, ideas there. But significantly more about what the blood pictures and why that matters when God institutes human government. We'll talk about that next time. So this was settled precedent that God had established there. This, this economy of eating that of eating meat, any any living thing would continue among all peoples until the day that God gave the law. ...by Moses, that we find in Leviticus chapter 11. Of course, the law began being given there in Exodus chapter 20. But we find here this idea uh, of a, a restriction. At this point, God imposed a unique set of restrictions upon the nation of Israel, which was a family, right? It was a family made up of 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes were from 12 sons. And those 12 sons were the sons of one father whose name was Jacob. His name would become Israel. And Israel had 12 sons and they became 12 tribes, 13 if you want to take the split of Ephraim and Manasseh into two separate tribes. And then God imposed upon them unique restrictions, a unique covenant of blessings and cursings in what we call the law of Moses. These restrictions, according to Leviticus chapter 10, verse 10, were there so that the nation could manifest a distinct difference between the holy and the unholy between the holy and the profane because they were to be what we call a city on a hill they would to be a lighthouse that all the nations of the earth would look to and say there's something different about them they are being blessed and cared for and protected in a way we aren't it must be their God and that would prove to the nations of the world that Jehovah was in fact the and the only true God that was the intent of course they failed at that intent but that was their intent That was God's intent through it. So through these cleanliness laws, there would be this visual manifestation to the rest of the world of the fact that the God of Israel was different than the other gods, the gods of the heathen. In the law then, in Leviticus chapter 11, God lays out his expectations for interaction with and consuming of animals. He divides them into clean animals and unclean animals. A land animal that had a parted hoof and that chewed the cud was clean. An animal that bore only one or neither of those characteristics was unclean. Hence the reason why a pig is unclean. They have the parted hoof, but they don't chew the cud. And, and, and ones that, that chew the cud, but don't part the hoof. If they part the hoof and chew the cud, then they are a clean animal as it relates to land animals. Water creatures, if they had fins and scales, they were clean. Any water creature that was, had only one or neither of those attributes of fins and scales would be unclean. Among flying creatures, God gave a fairly specific and explicit list of clean fowl. And among insects, God says the flying insects whose legs are above their feet, meaning that they are bent in such a way that allows for leaping, were clean. And those insects that were not that way were unclean. The consequences... For failing to abide, the consequences in Israel. God made this covenant with Israel, and with every requirement would come a blessing if they obeyed and a cursing if they disobeyed. And in this case, we see that same idea. If they disobeyed, they would become unclean. That them uh, consuming something unclean would make them unclean ceremonially. And that would disqualify them from interaction with the other people. It would disqualify them from specifically from worship. They could not come into the tabernacle or the temple if they were Clean, and so they would be unclean if they consumed unclean animals or even touched the carcass of an unclean animal or a dead animal for that matter until the evening. They would be unclean till the evening, at which point they would cleanse themselves, they would wash themselves, they would be unclean till the evening, and at the evening they would become clean again and then they could go about their business. So this economy would continue in Israel from the days of Moses through the time of Christ until the days just after Jesus ascends into heaven. Now, again, the law of Moses was not imposed upon the world at large. It was simply imposed upon Israel as a covenant, specifically to show themselves as different from the world that is around them. But when we get to Jesus Jesus dies on the cross, he's buried, he raises from the dead, he ascends into heaven on... Uh, 43 days later, and then seven days, they're waiting in Jerusalem, and then comes the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God falls on them. Uh, They begin to uh, manifest the signs that are are prophesied in the book of Joel, Joel chapter 2, of the last days. And those signs are to Israel, showing them that the last days had begun, and the church begins. So now the church has begun, and if you recall from the book of Acts, when the church begins, it is very Jewish-centric. The church is made up of just a bunch of people who were Jews, but who had chosen to follow Messiah, Jesus, as their Messiah. Whereas the rest of the Jews rejected Jesus as their Messiah. So then the rest of the Jews are doing their normal Orthodox Judaism thing. And then this other, this small contingency, we say small, several thousand people, contingent of Jews, believed that Jesus was in fact the Messiah and began following him as Messiah. And that brings us to Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, Peter is praying upon his household top in the sixth hour of the day and he gets very hungry. So they're preparing for him a meal and as they are preparing for him a meal, Peter sees a vision. And that vision begins in Acts chapter 10 verse 10 where the Bible says this. And he became very hungry, that would be Peter, and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened. And a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So you see the controversy here. In this trance, he sees all of these animals, many of which are unclean, maybe all, but at least obviously some are. And God says, Kill these things and eat these things. And Peter says, I can't do that, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. He's gone his entire life without ever having defiled himself with unclean meat. And notice the response in verse 15. And the voice spake unto him again a second. Uh, I, I, not 15. I skipped a verse. Um, verse 14. But Peter said, not so, Lord, I have never eaten anything. No. Nope. Okay. No, we're good. Verse 15. Uh, um, and the voice spake unto him again, my apologies for that, the second time, what God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice or three times and the vessel was received up again into heaven. So Peter sees this vision of unclean animals on a sheet and he's, he's called to consume them. Peter says, no, I won't do that. I, I have never eaten unclean meat. And the voice again replies to him and says, what God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. Don't call unclean what God has cleansed. And then the Bible says this happened three times. I've mentioned this already. In the Hebrew culture, in the Hebrew language, they don't have superlatives. Good, better, best. They don't have that superlative structure in their language. So they would add superlatives through repetition. So in that this happened three times, good, better, best, right? This is the max, the the highest superlative. It happened three times so that God could tell Peter, this is very, very important. I mean this. Right? It wasn't just once. It happened three times. I mean this. That's why Isaiah chapter 6, the angels around the throne. Holy, holy, holy. That's the superlative. That's the idea, right? So we see this repetition of three. Now, following this vision, we find that Peter is then sent to the house of a Gentile man. He is actually a centurion. His name is Cornelius, who, upon hearing the gospel, Cornelius was a devout man. He got a vision saying, send to Peter. Peter will tell you what you need to do to follow me. So Cornelius sends to Peter. Peter comes to him, and the man hears, hears the gospel, and he receives the Holy Ghost, and he is saved. Just as happened with the Jews. And this is very, very important. Because to this point, many of the Jews were thinking that the church is a Jewish thing. But see, God gave this vision of the sheets. And what, what, what Peter rightly interpreted is that that vision of the sheet and the animals was intended to be a direct statement to him that the Gentiles, who before were unclean, who were were ceremonially unclean and so were not invited into the worship of Israel were now clean. That God had made no distinction between Jew and Gentile as related to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that any who comes to Christ could be saved. And Peter recognizes that that vision of the sheets was intended to manifest that. And so through that, he recognized that the Gentiles could be saved as well. So Cornelius gets saved and then uh, then the, the church scatters throughout the entire Roman Empire and people are getting saved all over the Roman Empire. And so we say, well, fine then. So, so this isn't really letting the Jews off the hook as it relates to their diet. It's actually just a metaphor to show that Gentiles could be saved. Well, it is a metaphor to show that Gentiles could be saved, but no. It was also releasing the Jews from their dietary restrictions. How do we know that? That's where we go to Acts 15. In Acts 15, we have this man. His name was Saul. He became Paul. Paul was a man who began traveling the world. He was a, what's called the apostle to the Gentiles. He was traveling the, the known world preaching salvation. But there was a problem. And the problem was that he was not requiring those who got saved out of the Gentile world to get circumcised and to submit to the law of Moses. And the Jews in Jerusalem were getting very grumpy at Paul over this. They were very concerned that he was preaching a false gospel because of this. So Paul comes with a couple of men, one of whom... Uh, was Titus who was not a circumcised man and Titus who had been saved and he comes to Jerusalem to show the manifestations of the spirit of God in the Gentile world even to those who did not submit to the law of Moses Titus was his his example of that and he shows this to them and, and within the scope of this controversy as the Jewish church is trying to figure out what God is doing here Peter gets up again and Peter says this in Acts 15 beginning in verse 7 when there had been much disputing... So they're fighting back and forth, right? This is not new to the church, disputes and such. When they're, they're going back and forth, the Bible says, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us." And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So that is Peter referencing Cornelius. And when, through Cornelius, they recognized that Gentiles could be saved. Verse 10. uh, Yes, verse 10. He says, Now therefore why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of, of the Lord Jesus Christ... We shall be saved even as they. So Peter says this. He says, we, we see that the Gentile as well as the Jew can be saved. I know that for a fact because I'm the one that God began that through, through the vision of the sheets. And then he, he says this. He says, well, why then are we going to tempt God by placing the yoke of the law of Moses upon the necks of these disciples, asking them to carry a burden that our forefathers failed to carry? That's the whole reason why they needed Jesus. We'll talk more about that later. They needed Jesus because the law can't be kept. So we need someone to keep it for us. And that's why Jesus came. So why place upon them that burden that we could not bear? He calls it, in fact, tempting God to ask it of the Gentiles, stating that all men who put their faith in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be saved, whether Jew or Gentile, because Christ put no difference between them. They didn't have to get circumcised. They didn't have to keep the law. And Paul would then carry that teaching into his ministry. So the majority of the writing that we have of Paul is following what we call here the Jerusalem Council. Notice what Paul would go on to say to those unto whom he's writing. He says this to the Romans in Romans 14, verses 1 through 3. Him that is weak in faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Paul says, there are those in the church who only eat herbs. And this isn't even a clean or unclean issue at this point. There are those in the church who are vegetarians. He says, and and, and by conviction, by by faith, by conviction, they believe that this is right. And then there are those who believe that they can eat all things. No, No restrictions, no clean, no nothing. He says, God hath received both. Let not him that eateth not despise him that eats. Let not him that eats judge him that does not eat. Because God has received them. He would go on to say this, and this is a very important phrase. We talked about this a lot in Tuesday night not too long ago. I have about seven, the first seven parts of, the, of, of a series called Judgment uh, on YouTube if you'd like to listen to some of that. I don't have it all. I don't have the whole series up, uh, but just, just the first little bit of it. Um, but within that he says... We will all stand and fall before our own master. And our own master is the Lord. And so let us stand and fall before our master. You don't answer to me. I don't answer to you. Now, go listen to that series. That doesn't mean we have no obligation one to another. For far higher than the right of liberty is the call to love. And so we do have an obligation to one another but we do not answer to one another. We will stand and fall before our own master, and that is the Lord. So Paul says that here. Uh, others, some in the church gladly eat meat, some only eat, eat herbs. God has received both. He would say a similar thing in 1 Corinthians 8, if you want to dig into that a little bit. But in Colossians chapter 2, Paul kind of really settles this issue. He's writing to the church of Colossae, and he says this in verses 13 to 17. And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all your trespasses. This is speaking of Jesus forgiving our sins, not the uncircumcision of the flesh and the idea of of, uh, actual uncircumcision, but the idea of sin there. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them. So this is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus has blotted out the handwriting of, of transgressions against us. He has nailed it all to his cross. All of that is done. We are under the blood. We are, in that sense, perfect, right? Finished or complete in Christ. So he says, this is his conclusion in verse 16 and 17. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, a holiday, or in the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. These are not things anymore that we, we, do not, we do not sit under the weight of those burdens any longer. Paul says, because of this redemption that you have in Christ, don't let any man judge you in what you eat or drink. Now that's for or against People have chosen to abstain for their own health, for their own reasons, for their own, uh, because they believe that it is best before the Lord. Don't despise them for that. They've chosen to not abstain. Don't despise them for that. As long as we're not crossing those lines into sin, into intemperance, into gluttony, don't despise them for those things. Whether they observe a certain holiday, a certain feast, a certain Sabbath day. We we typically regard Sunday as the day to worship. We don't have to worship on Sunday. If we bumped it to Thursday, we could do that. Now, most of you couldn't come, but we could do that. There's nothing that says Sunday's the day except church tradition. See, it used to be that the Sabbath was the day, and that would be Saturday, of course, but the church is not under that. And we've chosen Sunday because that's the, the, that's the day that, that the Lord arose. The Lord arose on the first day of the week. Because it's also an opportunity for us to give the first fruits of our week to the Lord. We have some principles. There are some principles that undergird why we chose Sunday. First day of the week, we get to give the first of... We, we, we give the first of... The first fruits principle is a valid principle. We give the first of the things that we have to the Lord. First of our week to the Lord, that's a wonderful thing. Day that the Lord rose again, the first day of the week, a wonderful thing. But we're not bound to it. We certainly shouldn't judge one another for it. And all of this, all of which are things that God put in place. He put those things in place in the Old Testament, first as a part of teaching mankind their fundamental incapacity to attain unto righteousness. Why did God give the law? Why did God give the law to Israel? To show mankind our fundamental incapacity to obey Him in ourselves. But second... As Paul acknowledges here, he says as well that he gave it to man as a shadow of things to come. That's what we saw in Colossians. Colossians says, if you can see it there, that that the meat and the drink and the respect of a holy day and the new moon and the Sabbath are a shadow of things to come. Huh. So it's not just that God put them there to show man his incapacity. That's very important and it's there for that reason. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Galatians tells us that in Galatians 3. But it's also there as a type. We talked about type-anti-type relationships a little while ago. This is a type. The law is a type of something that is to come. And what those things are lies generally outside the scope of our time together today. There's a lot that could go into what are the the anti-types to this type of the law. But let me say this. If you trace... The Jewish feast days, not all the feast days, but the ones that are actually ordained in the law, you'll find a very interesting parallel between the order of those feast days, the spring ones and the fall ones, and the order of events as it relates to last things. So we find that the actual feast days themselves and even many of these ceremonial elements, the Sabbath day is also a picture. Hebrews tells us that the Sabbath day exemplifies victorious Christian living for the church today and it it signifies our eventual rest in heaven so that the Old Testament ceremonial law does not function just to show us our incapacities. It also functions typologically, we'd say, prophetically to teach us of things to come. To give us just a glimmer, just a shadow, right? If you see a shadow, you, you see my shadow here, you don't know what I look like. You simply know that there's someone there. There's a shape. You don't know anything about that shape. You can't even tell how tall I am because where's the sun or the light in, in, in direction? It makes the shadow longer or shorter, right? All you can tell is that there's something there. Paul says the law, particularly the ceremonial elements of the law, are a shadow of things to come. It's a discussion for another day. Where does this leave us for today? I've given you a lot of information here. I hope that you've been able to, to, to stay with me. Where it leaves us is a place of actually fairly strong clarity on this matter. Paul acknowledges that if a man, for conscience' sake, feels compelled to eat or not to eat something, he is certainly free to limit his liberty in whatever ways he deems necessary or desirable, as unto the Lord, as unto his health, as unto whatever it might be. But that the eating of meat, including that which Jewish law considers unclean, is a liberty which God has given to his people in this age of salvation, of Jew and Gentile alike in the church of Christ. And as Paul exhorts, thus we should not judge with respect to such things. God has called us unto liberty. God has called us unto peace. There is, however, one more layer that I'm compelled to address. And I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago in our first Thanksgiving message that I would do so. And that final layer is 1 Timothy 4 regarding the last days. So I've talked to you about the part of the church. That's the part that kind of matters to us. That's our for us since we're talking back and forth and wondering why do they eat that or not eat that? Why aren't they willing to do that? Why are they willing to do that? And of course, the, the principle of eating of meat, it balloons beyond just the eating of meat to other liberty issues. And those need discussion because there are certain things where we have to discern. Where's the line of sin here? What's, what is liberty and what is not? There's a lot into that. But what about this other aspect of Genesis chapter 9, not eating of meat? I've talked about the church aspect. We find ourselves in a unique time, something which hasn't necessarily been prolific, at least in recent history, where society is now discouraging the eating of meat. And we talked about this in our first message on Thanksgiving from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, where the Bible says this. Stay with me for just a few more minutes. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe uh, and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer." So Paul warns Timothy that one of the signs of the last day's apostasy would be the forbidding to marry, something which we find here, uh, in our day uniquely, the, the, the idea that people should not be getting married and particularly should not be having kids. And then we see the commanding to abstain from meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving. Now, there's a valid debate here about exactly what's happening in 1 Timothy 4. What is Paul seeing that he's expressing here? Is it a, a wholesale cultural apostasy, or is this actually an apostasy within the church where we're going to see within the church this sort of a push? Or maybe it's one and the same. We don't know because we don't know the future, right? We'll know when it comes. When it comes, the, the generation that sees it will we'll point to 1 Timothy chapter 4 and say, that's it. This is it. This is the warning. This is what's happening here but we are seeing shadows of it in our time. We dare not pass by this without acknowledging that we find ourselves in a day where this warning is becoming a reality. On the pretense of preserving the planet from climate change, of which we've already spoken, we spoke of that a couple of weeks ago in Genesis 8, society is actively and aggressively pushing for two primary solutions, among others, but two primary solutions to lower the carbon footprint, the first and the most prolific is the idea of not having children, stating that having one fewer children will cut a family's carbon footprint by 58.6 metric tons of CO2, or 586,000 kilograms of CO2. And then one of the other primary things, eat the bugs, right? That's their thing, eat the bugs. Cutting meat, stating that a person who cuts meat out of their diet will cut 820 kilograms of CO2 out of their carbon footprint. So that the command to abstain from meats, let me make this clear, not the honest conviction that you have in yourself that you should not eat a certain meat or eat meats for any health or particular reason, what, you know, that, that's whatever, but the particular conviction that you are not going to do this for the carbon footprint, for the earth, that sort of thing, This command to abstain from meats is reflected in Scripture. If we are abstaining from meats, he says, these things are that which God has, what does it specifically say here, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them that believe and know the truth. Again, I'm not saying it's unbiblical for you to reject the eating of meat. If you have an honest conviction to do so in yourself while determining not to judge others who do, Praise God for that. Enjoy. I don't know how you could enjoy, but enjoy. <laughs> but, I mean, you got to think Daniel, Hanani, Azra, and Mishael, they're watching these guys eat bacon and they're eating pulse and water. That was, that was hard, hard times for them, I'd imagine. Hard times. But, if, you, if we develop the conviction. That we must impose upon others the abstaining from meats. And in this case, these last days has something to do with this last day's apostasy. Maybe, maybe climate alarmism is a part of that last day's apostasy. It, it is a religious system. Climate alarmism, climate fascism, it's a religious system. Going all the way back to the worshipping of Gaia and everything else, right? Maybe that's a part of it. But Paul says these things are intended by God. They are given by God's design to humanity as a means by which to, to sustain them. And it's intended to be received with thanksgiving, sanctified by the word of God and of prayer. And so, to command the abstaining from meats, what Paul says in First Thessalon- Timothy 4 is that it takes what God gave us in Genesis chapter 9 And it shows contempt for it. It is contempt upon what God has given us to be enjoyed with thanksgiving to command the abstaining from such. Among a blanket, again, a blanket command. We're not talking about you choosing to abstain from meats for your reasons. We're talking about us imposing a top-down command, don't eat meat. It is a contempt for God's design. In the same way that saying, don't get married, one man, one woman for life, is a contempt for God's design. God has designed this into our, the fabric of humanity and society, and to reject it is to reject his design. And so as we close today, I'd like you to draw you to a perspective as it relates to this issue. My goal today was to give you the general overview of the Bible's teaching on this topic of eating of meat. Because it's both societally relevant today and it's always biblically relevant as it relates to the church. Because we're always having, there's always people that, that, that are dealing with this issue as it relates to the church. They go to some sort of messianic church and they're eating kosher. Uh, they go to some other church and they're taught that they should not eat any meat because of the Daniel plan. All of these different things. And I felt it necessary to do so because even as we explored in Romans 14, excuse me, Romans 13, there's always been this topic of interest in Christianity. But what we find about it in the scripture is actually quite clear. In the days of Noah, God gifted mankind every living creature to eat. God restricted this for the nation of Israel under the covenant that he made with them on Sinai, specifically to make them a distinct and unique people. God did not impose the same instric- uh, restriction when he instituted the church through the blo- uh, that, that would come of Jew and Gentile through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And then there is something in the ceremonial law that is looking forward to a shadow of things to come of which we do not know a whole lot about. We can make some speculations, but that's about it. God has thus given his people, once again, liberty, which is the definition of our age, grace. And he has given us this grace to eat meat, to not eat meat, according to the dictates of your conscience before God. And we in the church are going to have opinions on this issue. And we have opinions on many issues, and we have them for many reasons. And we choose to do what we choose to do, whatever that might be, specifically because we believe it's best. And that's wonderful. You do what you do because it's best. If you don't think it's best, you're probably not going to be doing it, right? And if you do do it, even though you don't think it's best, well, that's on you. That's between you and God. And then in the church, we have other things that we do in the church as a means by which to function as a body. Because whenever you get a bunch of people together, there are logistical issues that have to be worked through about how everyone's going to get along with one another. And we have to do that as well. And that makes sense for the church. And that makes sense for society. And all of these things, they make sense. But we need to put them in their proper place. We need to resist the urge as well to divide ourselves along these lines. When I believe something is best, I am naturally going to exhort those that I love to consider it as well. If I, didn't think, if I think it's best for me, well then I want to let you know what I think is best so that it might benefit you. But to despise or to judge one another on the basis of something within which God has explicitly given us liberty in the Bible is to show contempt for your brother. It's to show contempt for God and his word. And it should not be named among us. But also... As it relates to the broader society and what's happening in society today, any system which commands Christians regarding the eating of meat or not eating of meat regarding restrictions upon it is a system which is functioning at very least out of balance. Outside of the balance that the scriptures have led us to to maintain. And in certain cases, shows even a contempt for the design and the structure of the Lord and of the way that he, he, he made us and the way he designed us to function. And if a system is out of balance or it shows such contempt, it is in some way compromised. And it needs to be either rebuked or refused. Instead, what we get to do, and thank God for it, in, in, uh, in agreement with what our first John series is teaching us right now, we get to live joyfully, and uniformly in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. We need not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage, Galatians 5. For some that will, that, that living in that liberty will actually be binding your liberty. You will bind yourself to various restrictions for various reasons. You believe that Genesis 1 through 8 is the way to go before the Lord, honestly sanctified by the word of God in prayer? Don't eat meat, go for it. Others, you believe that, that God must have instituted the law for some reason and if he instituted it for some reason then you're happy to bind yourself to it. Go for it. Just don't start stoning people. But if you see the liberty wherewith God has made you free and you want to live within that, by all means live joyfully. Happy is the man who does not live under the weight of such things that God has released him from. And of course, all of this guided by Love, the highest law, the bond of perfectness, as Colossians calls it. Love and regard, one for another. Love and regard for the body. For as we have learned throughout this entire month, and as is our memory work for the month, John thirteen thirty-five. by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye don't eat meat. Nope, not it. If you do eat meat, nope. If ye love, if ye have love, one to another. Let's elevate it. Let's live in it. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people. I ask that though today's message was maybe not the most um, prolific as it relates to exhortation, that God's people would have learned from it. That it would give us a perspective by which we can glean the necessary things in order to live before you in joy, in grace, in love, in holiness, in sanctification, and in obedience. Father, help us not to fall short of these things through selfishness. Help us not to fall short of these things through false teaching. Help us not to fall short of these things through a misguided understanding of your word. But rather, grant us that we would, by means of your word and through your Holy Spirit, understand and best apply the things that you have called us unto and the things you have given to us to be enjoyed with thanksgiving, sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And may you be honored in our response this morning as your spirit guides us into these truths